Testament. If you have your Bibles open to Numbers, the book of Numbers, we'll start out in verse 13 and read some in verse 14 as well. I hope you've been able to continue uh, your reading uh, this past week. Again, as I always say, if, you, if you've fallen behind or maybe you've not even started yet with this Read the Bible for Life emphasis that we're doing as a church family, just pick up where we're at this week. I think on the back of your bulletin sheet there, you'll see the readings uh, for the coming days. In today's text, we're going to take a close look at the Israelites as they stand on the precipice of promise. Faith over fear, a people on the precipice of promise, Numbers 13 and 14. We're going to see how fear forced them to retreat from what God was calling them to do. And we need, we need to see this. Church, we need to see this because just like the Israelites, just like them, treacherous temptation for us as the church and for us as individuals as well to see what God's doing, to, to, to understand what God's doing, what he's calling us to do, leading us toward, and yet to be bound by fear, to choose comfort over challenge, to choose security over sacrifice, to choose routine over risk. Beloved, this is so critical because if we hope to be and do everything that we're to be and do as a church, and to live at the level as individuals as our father, that our Father desires for us to live at, that will often call for faith and courage in the face of challenge and change. Let's read the text, and would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're in chapter 13. We're going to read just verse 1 through 3 right here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Then skip down to verse 25. At the end of forty days they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran in Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land and they told him we came to a land to which you sent us it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit however the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large and besides we saw the descendants of Anak there the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Father, uh, a familiar passage for us today, a story that perhaps we've read and heard many times. I pray today you'd give us a fresh reminder, Father, of the truths that are in your word, that truths that can can be brought out from this text to be appropriate to our hearts and lives for this time. We pray for your Holy Spirit to do that work 
myself to your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's important for us to understand the context here. In Numbers 13, there is great excitement. There is tremendous anticipation. The Israelites are fresh off deliverance from 400 years in slavery. Everyone's eager at the prospect of entering the promised land. God had given them the law through his servant, their leader Moses. They were right where they were supposed to be according to the plan of God. And now God directs Moses to send men to spy out the land of Canaan, a land that's described as richly abundant, flowing with milk and honey, a thriving land ripe for their taking. And at the end of 40 days, we read in verse 25, they returned from spying out the land. They returned to report. But only two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go up at once, let's occupy the land. We are well able to overcome it. Ten of the spies rise up and say, no, we, we can't do that. We can't go against these people. They are far, far stronger than we are. Well, so here we see fear, not faith, but fear apprehending the hearts of those who were among the very bravest of Israel. But what about the people, you say? How, how did they react? How did they react to these two very different reports? Numbers 1 through 4 answers that question in chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole country said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So let's cut through all the clutter. Because the bottom line here is they didn't believe God. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe the God who had miraculously delivered them and protected them and provided for them and pledged to them to be with them as they occupied the land that he had given to them. They simply did not believe God. And the funny thing about unbelief is that fear is often nearby. Here's an important lesson for us, church family. Get this. Fear can often be traced back to unbelief. And the heart of unbelief is that it, it violates the trust that we have in our relationship with God. I want to ask, ask yourself, beloved, does your Father, do you think your Father in heaven has your best interest at heart? Jeremiah 29, 11 declares absolutely he does. God's speaking. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. As the old saying goes, that's straight from the horse's mouth, okay? From the highest authority in the, in the universe. The only question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that with every fiber of our being? And we might wonder, how... How is it that the Israelites could not believe? I mean, how, how could they not believe after all they've seen? How could they forget how good God had been to them? I mean, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, water from a rock, the quail, bread from heaven, 
the pillar of fire by day, the cloud by night, and on and on and on and on. We, we find it, I do, utterly unbelievable that they could have forgotten. But in the text, we read that they cried out, I would say whined aloud, would that we would have died in the land of Egypt, or that we would die right here in this wilderness. And that's a head-scratcher for me. I don't know about you. It seems that overnight, the people have forgotten the grace of God. And poised as they were on the very border of the land he was going to give them, a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. Now, we're there. Let me just pause for a minute. A little parenthetical insert here. And, and just say this about that phrase, milk and honey, that we see no less than 20 times in Scripture. First time back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. It's a beautifully poetic phrase describing the promised land. The idea those experts tell us, is, is, is one of unbounded opulence. The land was one of unbounded opulence. The land that was agriculturally rich, able to sustain many livestock. That was symbolized metaphorically by the word translated milk. A land that had vast, fertile farmlands available, suggested by the word translated bees. You see, farmland with plentiful crops from which the bees could then draw nectar. A land of milk and honey. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt to a super abundantly prosperous land filled with potential. And despite all that, they concluded that God had not been good to them after all. In fact, they asked, would it not have been better for us to die back in Egypt? Why don't we just go back there? And again, we might well wonder, how could they even think that? But beloved, before we rush to judgment, don't we also tend to forget his goodness and his grace. We're not so very different from the Israelites. In fact, as we look at them and we try to judge their hearts, if we're honest, we can see our own sinful hearts. Every time we choose self-indulgence over self-sacrifice, every time we choose to feed our hunger for the world rather than fuel our passion for holiness, every time we choose the fear of circumstances over faith in God. Every time we choose to retreat from godliness to the ungodly things from which Christ has delivered us, we prove that we are no better than the Israelites. And listen, I, I get it. I, I, I know all too well how easy it is for me to forget the goodness and the grace of God, to, to allow myself to get distracted by conditions and, and circumstances and, and choices and to forget how good He's been to me. And how often he's shown me undeserved grace and all those times he's delivered me from my failings, provided more than I'd have imagined, loved me when I was quite unlovable. Am I the only one? To forget that we are where we are because our Heavenly Father has brought us here by his grace. To forget that he has promised to stay by our side. That in his grace he will never leave us or forsake us to forget that he would deliver us from every dark day by his grace. Beloved, we fall into the trap of forgetfulness more often than we'd like to admit. If we're honest about it, we too can turn our backs on the goodness and the greatness and the grace of God. Just like the Israelites did when they said, why didn't we just die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us to this place to just to kill us? Our wives and our children are about to be taken away as plunder. Why don't we just go back to Egypt and do it right now? We read earlier in chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, and I'll paraphrase this time. 
We can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. They spread scary rumors about the people of Israel. They said we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants. Alongside them, we felt like grasshoppers, and they looked at us, and they thought we were grasshoppers. They see the Nephilim, these huge Goliath-type people in size, men in size, but in truth, they were, they were not as many as some of the spies seem to indicate, every man in Canaan did not look like Goliath. And we're going to stop here and do another parenthetical insert because I know there's lots of interest in this race of giants known as the Nephilim. Lots of opinions about exactly who they are. So what does the Bible say about the descendants of Anak? The Anakim were the descendants of a man named Anak, sons of Anak, who were descendants, who were descendants of the Nephilim. And the first reference to Nephilim is found in Genesis chapter 6. They're identified as the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated daughters clearly refers to human women. But for exactly who the text is referring to by the phrase the sons of God, there has been just a, a tremendous amount of disagreement among scholars. Some believe the sons come from the line of Seth and the daughters come from from the line of Cain, constituting a union between the godly and the ungodly, something God specifically prohibited. The questions that arise, they'll make this interpretation not seem to fit. I mean, why, why does this make God angry enough to wipe out almost everybody on the face of the earth? Why was there something special, extraordinarily unusual uh, about the offspring of these unions between the line of Seth and the line of Cain? So again, this doesn't seem to fit the record of the text. Uh, another view suggests that the sons of God were fallen angels who reproduced human females, the offspring being giants with enhanced physical capabilities. At least a couple of ob objections raised by those who oppose those theories. There's one right there. <laughs> she didn't like this theory. The first being that there's nothing in the text to identify the sons of God as fallen angels. Second, the Bible never indicates that Angels are physiologically capable, compatible with human women and could procreate with them, unless Genesis 6 is the only example. Another view suggests that the Nephilim were fallen angels who spiritually possessed human men. Their purpose in both those cases was to pollute the human race in an effort to prevent the coming of the one who would crush the head of Satan. This, this theory that they just spiritually inhabited them solves that problem of physiological incompatibility, but, but there's nothing in the text to suggest demonic possession. Still, another view of the Nephilim is that the statement in Genesis 6-4, the giants on the earth in those days, simply means that being big and tall and mighty in those days was not all that uncommon. Genetically, humanity was still in nearly pristine condition, so there were these were, this theory goes that they were merely the sons of men, which would explain why there were giants before the flood and after the flood, being that the primeval genetic material that predisposed someone to be a giant was survived through Noah's family that survived the flood. And the fact that Nephilim are still around sporadically after the flood is an indicator that, that, that giants like Goliath were exceptional, but they weren't superhuman. Now, bottom line, I suggest that we not be so dogmatic 
on an issue that the Scripture says so little about, an issue that's not theologically significant in the big picture scheme of things to begin with. And if it's a subject that interests you, there is no small amount of research out there. Go for it. So again, let's get back to the text. Enough of that. Because the more important question here centers on what is the relevance of this story for us. And it's this, simply put. God wants us to believe. When those 12 spies surveyed the land, again, 10 of them didn't believe they could overtake the Anakim and claim what was theirs. And the result was devastating for the Israelites. They spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness instead of beginning the conquest of the promised land, which is not going to be a cakewalk, right? All Caleb and Joshua, whose faith, only Caleb and Joshua, whose faith in God was unwavering, was allowed to enter. Beloved, God wants us to believe in His faithfulness as well. Situations and circumstances may not work out like we'd hoped they would, right? But He will reward our faithfulness, just as a lack of faith has consequences. God blessed Joshua and Caleb for their faith. And beloved, He desires to bless us as well. We too are His children. We too are heirs of the promise. No matter what the giants, metaphorical or real, that may be standing in our way, God wants us to understand and believe that He's more powerful than all of them and that through His strength, God wants us to have the faith that in His strength we can overcome those giants. God wants us to believe He's bigger than our giants, and we do have our giants. Health scares, financial situations, family turmoil, and sometimes those tough situations can seem bigger than God, but they're not. They never are. We can be sure, beloved, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We know that our Savior, our Rock, and our Redeemer conquered death in the grave, rose victorious to reign and to rule, and He's at the right hand of the Father and is indeed interceding for us. We can be sure that there is no trouble, no distress, no persecution or poverty or danger or weapon that we cannot overcome through Him. For in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we can be sure, beloved, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through him, beloved, we can overcome any earthly giant we might face. And with his help, Joshua and Caleb overthrew the Anakim, because that was God's plan. And God can make anything happen, even bring our giants to their knees. And again, our situations may not work out exactly like we hoped they would, like we thought they would, but God is still in control. As the old song goes, He's got the whole world in His hands, and that includes our giants. We can also see from the text that God can use anyone. Caleb was 85 years old when he took on the Anakim. Joshua 14, 11 says, And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Caleb didn't let his age stop him. He didn't let the fact that he's been wandering around in the desert for 40 years with a bunch of grumbling Israelites stop him. He's ready to fight for God. He's ready to do battle for God's people. Beloved, God can use us too. 
whatever age or state we might find ourselves in. Maybe we feel too old. Maybe we feel too young to be used by God. Beloved, that's the enemy talking. Our own sinful nature feeding fear and doubt. Maybe we feel too dried up after walking through our own wilderness. Maybe we don't feel like we're the man or the woman for the job. More lies. God prom God's promises are for everyone who placed their faith in Christ's finished work at Calvary. If you sense God is calling you to something, step out. Move forward in the name of Christ. And know you're not alone. God was with Caleb when he called him to overtake the Anakim, and he will be with you in whatever mission he's placed on your heart. God, God enabled Caleb to face the Anakim, and he prepares us to stand up to our giants. God is bigger than anything we might face. He'll be with us. He'll even fight our battles for us. The Israelites' ancestors eventually inherited the promised land. Beloved, there are promises awaiting you and me as well. We need to be bold and believe in the faithfulness of God and the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. We need to have the faith and the courage to move forward with the sure knowledge that our Father's with us every step of the way. Here, here's where the Israelites went wrong. They glorified the problem they faced at the expense of the promise they received. It's like they had this three-by-five wallet-sized shot the spies had taken, and they enlarged it to a 24-by-36 portrait, and that led them to a flawed and ultimately fatal conclusion that all of Canaan's filled with these massive Goliaths, and that by comparison, we're merely grasshoppers. And if it weren't so sad, it would be funny. But it's not. How, how could they forget? How could they make such a terrible mistake? But we forget. We make the same mistake. Every time we come up against what looks like insurmountable odds or impossible circumstances, our giants in the land, and we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on the problem, making him smaller than he is and the problem bigger than it is, we're doing the same thing the Israelites did at Kadesh Barnea. Listen, there are no problems that we'll ever face, beloved, that will be bigger than the promises that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Just like the Israelites, though, we have a tendency to glorify the problem we're facing, even just the potentiality of a problem. We don't need a real problem to cause trouble. We can imagine one. We can glorify it. We can magnify it. We glorify the problem at the expense of the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, when all we can see are the problems, listen, you know the Bible says keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. It doesn't say keep your eyes fixed on your problems. The Word of God says cast all your anxiety on God because He cares for you. It doesn't say keep it to yourself because there's no one that cares about you. The Word says He'll never leave you or forsake you. He didn't say, he didn't say figure this out because you're on your own. We do the same thing the Israelites did every time we get blinded by the promise, pro, problems that we face and fail to recognize and fail to remember and fail to rest in the grace and the goodness and the greatness of our God, who is bigger and stronger and smarter than any problem we'll ever face. Verse 22, chapter 13. Let's look at that verse for a moment. It may not seem like there's much there, but you, you might be surprised. 
They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. So the spies come to a place called Hebron. Great. Now think about this as like you're up on the top of Rattlesnake or, or, or Badger Mountain and you're just trying to scout out this area. That kind of scene, okay, geographically. By the way, that name Hebron should be familiar to you. It's been a few weeks, but in Genesis chapter 13, right after we met Abram, who would become Abraham, in Genesis 12, remember he and Lot go their separate ways. God restates his promise to Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, right after that. And then in verse 18 we read, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Abraham is at Hebron. Now follow this with me to Genesis 15, where God makes the covenant promise to Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, that's Egypt, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So Abraham is at Hebron. Does anybody recall where Sarah and Abraham were buried? Just guess. Hebron. How about Isaac and Rebekah? Also buried at Hebron. And so was Jacob and Leah Israel, all buried there at Hebron. Hebron was the place where God told Abraham, made a covenant actually with Abraham, saying, lift up your eyes and look from this place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now back to our text. God promised to give to his people. And they went up into the Negev and came to where? Hebron. And again, we wonder, how could they not connect the dots here okay, and be blown away by the faithfulness and the greatness and the sovereignty of Almighty God working in the lives of His chosen people? From their forefather Abraham, right on through Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and Moses to, well, to them. As they stood there on the precipice of the promised land, land promised to Abram 600 years earlier, at Hebron, say at Hebron. God did precisely what he said he would do. He assembled an army, a fighting force of 600,000 men, 1121, and everything is set to unfold according to his plan. Shouldn't the people be on their faces praising God, understanding how faithful he had been through those 600 years? Shouldn't they be amazed at how he kept his promises? And instead, what do we read? We are not able. They are stronger than we are. And again, they're so myopic that all they could see were, were the giants in the land. All they could see was the danger. All they could see was the threat of failure and their faithlessness and resultant fear paralyzed them and blinded them to the faithfulness and the supremacy of their God. And the direct, and the direct result of their fear was disobedience. They were ready to pick a new leader and Go back to Egypt. And that blatant disobedience had consequences. 
as it always does. By their disobedience, they eliminated themselves. They took themselves out of the picture as it pertained to the promised land. It was theirs. It was there for the taking. They had God standing by, ready to fight their battles for them, just like He did at the Red Sea back in Exodus chapter 14, and as He would for the next generation, led by Joshua in 40 years. The generation of Israelites, this generation faltered and fell back in the face of fear, and because of that, they missed out on their promise. Look over at 1435. Numbers 1435. One of the saddest, most overwhelming, one of the most humbling verses in all of Scripture when you consider the incredible opportunity the Israelites had, the, the foolish choice they made, and especially the horrible consequences that they suffered. God is speaking here to the people, and this is what it says. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. An entire generation die, not having experienced the promise that was literally within their grasp. If only their faith in God would have been stronger than their fear of the Canaanites. Tragically, we see that the ten spies who failed to support Caleb and Joshua were struck down by a plague almost immediately, and eventually every single person in that generation died in the wilderness, never having seen the promised land. How tragic. They missed their chance. And they tried to make up for it. Look at verses 40 through 45 in chapter 14. They tell the story, I'll paraphrase. They got up early one morning and said, Okay, Lord, we're ready now. We're ready to take what you've given us. We know that we sinned. We're ready to go. They acknowledged their sin, but Moses advised against it. They went up against the Amalekites and the Canaanites anyway, and they were soundly defeated. And Moses told them, don't do this. God's not going to be with you, and if he's not with you, you're not going to win this battle. That's because you turned away from God, and he'll not be with you because of that. But there's a great lesson for us in this, that we dare not miss. There's real danger lying in the path of anyone who sets themselves in opposition to the will of God. Before we wrap this up, I want to share with you something from the book of Joshua. Joshua 15. Allow me to read it to you, and we're going to connect all the dots here in just a minute. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. You care to guess what portion Caleb got? Hebron. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Do you think that Caleb defeated those men? Now, he's 85 years old. Do you think he defeated them because of his superior strength or because he had a larger force or because he was more experienced in battle? No. Caleb was able to drive them out because of his faith in God. He was able to defeat them because he trusted in the power and the promise of his God. The faith that Joshua and Caleb exhibited before people bound by fear, nearly got them killed. Remember back in Numbers 14.10. Just before they're about to be stoned, well, let's read the text. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. There it is. So we're back to the tabernacle. 
God's presence in the midst of the camp, the obedience of Joshua and Caleb, their faithfulness in God's goodness paved the way for the blessing of the presence of God there with the people. And Joshua and Caleb were the only ones from that entire generation that were allowed to enter the promised land. You say, great story, preacher. What difference does that make to me? So what? It does make a difference when we look in the New Testament at chapters 3 and 4 in the book of Hebrews. Because there we see that this story is written not just for the Israelites, it's written for us as well. Written to caution us and remind us as God's people in our day. Written to help us learn from the failure of the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea. Let's look at the verses. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the land because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, that's you, say that's me, that's me, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And now verse 11, And I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. So we've got to personalize this. We've got to look at it from our personal perspective and ask whether or not we will trust God or we will trust ourselves. Do we trust Him when the way seems difficult and there are giants before us? Will we find our rest in Him or let fear and disobedience rob us of the promised rest. Forty years and an entire generation was wasted because of fear and a desire for comfort overcame the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. And the question for you and the question for me is, what opportunities have you and I already wasted because of the fear of giants and the desire for comfort? And will we continue to miss out on opportunities in the future because we lack courage and we crave